0: Hi, everyone. This is Dan Sullivan, and we're here for another podcast episode of Anything and Everything. And this is a very exciting week because Jeff Madoff, and we've been informing people over a period of three years, at least, of the progress of his play personality. And the third jump is next summer, 12 weeks, is it? Do you have 12 weeks? Yes. Yes. 12 weeks in Chicago at a wonderfully renovated, I guess, early 20th century theater, the Studebaker Theater, which is from Jeff's comments because he just came back from Chicago for Audition Week. So just walk us through what Audition Week is because you had auditions for the first workshop presentations in New York City, which Babs and I were invited to, probably slightly contrary to union rules, and we're invited in because you got to know people, and I know Jeff. And the other one is the opening, the real opening on the road, which was in Philadelphia last February, if I believe. March. Yeah. March. This is big time, big time. Chicago is a great Theater City, great talent pool, both on the acting side and certainly on the music side. And you've just went there. So how do you approach this? Because, you know, you're moving up in league every time you take another jump with it. And probably 100 people start off with a play and we're down under 10, probably, the number of plays that get started as an idea. They're now at the stage that you're at right now.
1: We've actually had the table read, which was first and the first time I did any kind of auditions, although they were very limited, but got people from Hamilton because they liked the script, pass it on to some other people. And so in my office for Lloyd and myself, my wife, and maybe five other people whose opinions we wanted, we did a table read after those auditions. Then we did the 29 hour where we performed in front of a 100-plus people at the Orbach Theatre. That was a whole starting over again, mm-hmm. finding talent and auditioning. Then the workshop. Then Malvern. And now the fifth incarnation is for Chicago. And the audition process is quite fascinating. You know, it starts off these days. It didn't used to be the case. And this did happen before COVID also, where you get links and some actors already have things they submit for auditions depending on the play other ones will record music if it's a musical that relates to the play or they'll just send you the songs that one or two numbers that they think showcases their talents they'll they will read the sides from the play and the sides are basically pages from the script and so will if depending on who they're auditioning for they'll read for that And then what we went in for this past week was we did an elimination. So there were a number of people that we saw on video that we didn't feel were right. So we didn't invite them in person, but we did. So I had the first wave was probably 88 people, at least something like that. And we had auditions for probably 25, 30, because it's hard to tell. On video, that's the worst way for the talent and for us, you know, to really tell what they've got. I actually started dance auditions on Monday. In our case, it requires a collaboration among a bunch of people. So there's me as the playwright. There is Sheldon Epps, who is our director who's evaluating the talent in a particular way. And he and I collaborate a lot on that, what do we like, what side should we have them read, whatever. Shelton Becton, the musical director. And it's so interesting to watch Shelton because I don't know his world as well as I know the other. And then similarly with Edgar Godino, our choreographer. And so he started Monday before the other three of us even got there because he started with dance movement auditions. So we got there a day ahead of us because that would eliminate certain people we wouldn't need to read them if they couldn't do the required moves.
0: One of the things is that from a talent standpoint, if I'm looking at it from the actors, they've got to do three things. They've got to be able to be a good actor. They've got to be able to be a good singer and they have to be a good dancer. And so musicals are a trifecta of talent. I mean, there's lots of great actors who can't do the other two, and there's dancers who can't do the other two, and there's singers who can't do the other two. That's right.
1: That's right. And the term in the theater is triple threat. And I think that all of the people listening know who Hugh Jackman is, who can play Wolverine and be menacing and dark But he is currently starring in Music Man. He's a tremendous singer and dancer and actor. And he has that X factor that we need in our two Lloyds, Mm -hmm. which is that there's a charisma. Because there are people that can sing, dance, and act who are quite good at it, but they don't have the star quality.
0: Yeah. The thing is that, you know, explain who Lloyd is because we probably have new listeners today. So this is a historical musical in the sense is based on the life of an actual crossover artist who actually is probably the bridge from a previous genre of music to rock and roll in the very early 1950s. Right, 1952.
1: Mm-hmm. Lloyd recorded a song called Lottie Miscwani,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is considered one of the cornerstone songs of rock and roll. The music business at that time was an adult business. Teenagers didn't buy records, and there were independent blues and jazz
0: records. Adults being people who are younger than you and me, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: yes, we're not addressing the senior community here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's um, yeah, weird when you're on the inside looking out and you forget your age. Mm -hmm. But that's also a good thing. As I often say, I have aged, I just haven't matured. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Lloyd's recording of Laudy Miss Claudia was a catalyst for a seismic change in the music industry. It was the first record by a teenager that sold over a million copies. Portable record players, you know, you think about our grandparents' age, And, you
0: know, Dan, you'd go to their home and see that big piece of furniture. Yeah, they were 78s when I was growing up. The ones that were as fragile as China. (laughs) Yes.
1: And the thing is that they would have five of these 78s, which are like that big around, in a sleeve, in a binder, which is why they were called record albums, because it was actually an album of records Mm -hmm. that would be an opera or classical music or something. So. Lloyd entered the world at a time when the youth movement, he was a catalyst in that. The birth of rock and roll, he was a significant catalyst in that. And the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And all these things were converging at a unique time in history. And he was the first teenager to sell over a million records. He was the first musician of any color to start his own label. He was an entrepreneur. He was the first black to open a nightclub below Harlem, which is across the street from the Ed Sullivan Theater, where the Colbert Show is now. And that was a famous nightclub before Lloyd took it over and called it the turntable. So he was an entrepreneur. He was a recording artist. He was an innovator.
0: And he opened the doors for a lot of other talent coming up after him. too. He he
1: did. And not just black talent, also young. 'Cause that just wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. But then it caught fire. And you know, a lot of America thinks, you know, that Elvis was the king of rock and roll. Elvis did not think he was the king of rock and roll. And one of the first big hits that Elvis had was Lottie Mesclaudi. Mm-hmm. And there's a really cool version you can look at on YouTube, which is Elvis's comeback concert. I think it's in 1968. And he did an acoustic version of it. And this is fabulous. So Lloyd is a really interesting character. I had done a documentary about him and got to know him. We became very, very close friends. And I thought, wow, what a compelling story. This is a story that needs to be told. And fortunately, you got to meet him, Dad.
0: (laughs) I did. Yeah, it was interesting because we both had Army experience in South Korea, He was there during the Korean War in the early 50s, but he was in the same unit as I was. I was there in the mid-60s. We talked about it, and he traveled around Korea, and we had been to a lot of the same places. But, you know, I'm talking to someone who, when I met him, I think was probably 87, maybe 86, 87. I don't know how old he was, because he just died in the spring of 91, was it? He died May of 21. 21, 21, yeah, yeah. Where you first met him... At the workshops, I think it was Yeah, workshops.
1: Yeah, and I think he was 80, 84, 85 then.
0: Yeah, yeah. Had all his marbles and had never ruined himself with all sorts of side activities.
1: Yeah, well, that's right, that's right. And was very, very sharp up until the end. Mm-hmm. And an amazing memory. It was phenomenal to have primary resource at my disposal in telling his story. And I recorded him for 20-some hours over a period of several days. We came so close. To he was such a great guy. And one of the things about it is he's an unsung the hero. People don't know this story. And the people come away with it. Then, Why didn't I know that? You know, and they Google him, listen to his music. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you and I have talked a number of times about, of course, business and collaborations. And we both agree you loved theater, not just as an observer. It was something you even thought of pursuing yourself. Mm -hmm. And that collaboration in the arts has more in common with business than it does different. It's kind of an interesting springboard or example. What I just was through this past week in terms of, you know, how do you make decisions? How do you make sure everybody is aligned? All of those things in order to progress. Because, yeah, I've now entered that small percentage of plays that makes it to a full blown commercial production in
0: a major city. Yeah, well, the other thing is that uh, you have the talent auditioning, but uh, you're actually a rookie. So each stage here is your first time with a production. You have uh, you know, a whole team around you, you know, at the director level, the choreography level, the musical level. And these people have many, many productions behind them. And you've got a lot of productions from a video standpoint and everything else. But it's interesting how you're approaching this because there's a lot of wow factor at each jump you make along this factor for you. You have no grounds for being blasé about anything. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... I mean, you're you're a veteran of producing great content. You're a veteran of... Going back fifty years of being in the big leagues in terms of things that you were doing, but this is different. You're just telling him about your going into this completely renovated theater that is a hundred years old or more, and just saying, Wow. <laughs> that's a lot of seats.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. <To fill. laughs> yes. Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. No,
1: you're right. And It's very cool. Is it daunting? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, because there's a lot of people more and more who are investing in this as we move forward. So it's, I feel beholden to all the people who have, who are involved. And, you know, the people who fund this, although they aren't in the trenches on the day-to-day basis, if we didn't get their funding, we wouldn't be in the trenches on the day-to-day basis. So, Gratitude all around. Yeah. In terms of that. And I think a lot of people forget that part. (laughs) You know, that all of a sudden somebody, if a purse string is tightening, they start resenting somebody instead of realizing, well, they made an investment. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other story, but it's not unrelated, both in the entertainment business and in just the kind of businesses that you deal with. But you know, it's interesting because I was thinking as you were saying. The director, musical director, and all the creative talents I have—set design, lighting design, sound design, choreography, the projection, and all that. Why well, had to audition now? You know, and auditioning them was looking at their work, meeting them because you can love somebody's work, but if you don't have a rapport, if you don't have chemistry with them, that's a danger. You know, that's a danger, and you know. It's hard enough mounting a play or a business that you want to make sure that you're getting involved with the right people.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is they can be great front stage, but they may be a problem backstage.
1: And explain that distinction. You and I were talking about that a little before, and I love that distinction.
0: Yeah. In other words, that the audience may love them, but nobody who works with them does. In other words, and that's corrosive. That's very, very corrosive in any field. I mean, I don't care what the human you know organization is or what the thing is. Uh, you want people who play well with each other. They have to compete on an individual basis, but once they're accepted, then they have to be a really good team member. That's right. But
1: give us that distinction, between the front stage and backstage person?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm a front stage person. So my activity shows up in podcasts with you. It also shows up in giving live workshops, whether that's in-person workshops or it's on Zoom now because we've been forced and, you know, really profited by the fact that we had to For a couple of years, you know, in order to earn our keep, we had to get the money through people who were all over the planet. But I was the front stage person. And then I write and I have a lot of books. I do a lot of videos. I do a lot of audios. And simply what I mean is that the appropriate role for me is presenting, you know, the product and presenting the message that our company has. Babs is good front stage, but she's actually the backstage person. This is my partner in life and my partner in business for 40 years, Bab Smith. And if you used a theater analogy, she's responsible for the whole theater and the success of the theater. And I'm responsible for what the audience actually sees, you know, so. When you look at any business, I think the theater analogy is a very good one. you got to make sure that your front stage is good, and that's what the customers see, and that's what the customers enjoy, and that's what the customers refer, that other people should come and have this experience. I always say that the script for front stage is quite a bit smaller than the script for backstage, and that's, you know, if you took all the binders that the choreographer and the music director and the sound director and everything. They've got binders too. And I have to tell you their binders are a lot thicker than the script that the actors work for and the musicians work for our front stage. You know, there's a lot of electricity and plumbing behind the walls that you don't want the audience to see. That's right. And you sure don't want them <laughs> one thing to do is always make sure that you're paying customers you don't involve them in your backstage issues. <laughs> That's right. You're absolutely right. It's not like the airline industry. I've said that the airline industry is the most consistent marketing industry in the history of the world because they have a formula that we're not happy until you're not happy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, they have been working on that over the years. And you that can be
0: consistent. Sense. You yes. can be consistent with that unless you get, Um, too good.
1: (laughs) But I wanted to point out also that your backstage, front stage uh, comparison isn't a result of our conversations. This
0: is how you viewed your business for years. Entrepreneurship is most akin to the entertainment industry. The entrepreneur has to be very, very clear about they as a personality and they as a person, are they the front stage lead in the company? Because if that's the case, then you have to have an equally powerful backstage person who actually manages the business of the business. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very, very good at selling and I'm very, very good at bringing in money, but you don't want me To have anything to do with the money after the envelope is opened. (laughs) I get it. Yeah. You know,
1: what we were going through, which is interesting with the auditions, is, and this is where collaboration comes in so strongly, Edgar Godino, our choreographer, may say, this person is a fantastic dancer. They can do the partnering and the flips and, and acrobatics. We want our dancer to do great. And Sheldon may say, but they can't sing. Yeah, we need somebody that can sing. Mm -hmm. Sheldon and I always confer on the actors. And Sheldon may say, they don't have the chops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can't be. uh, We're demanding, by the way. Our play uniquely is demanding, not that other plays haven't. But, you know, we've got the same actor who plays, and I think this is fascinating, plays the businessman at the airport. You know these parts. Opens a second act doing Tutti Frutti, the Little Richard song, then plays Oni Semeka Lloyd's driver in Nigeria. And then he's part of the ensemble and dancing. Mm-hmm. We're asking this talent to do a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have to collaborate among us that they're going to fill, check the boxes necessary. I mean, we had on the floor, we probably had 25, 30 pictures for probably about 10 different slots that we were considering people for and moving them around. And then you start horse trading. Well, do they sing well enough that they can sing in the ensemble? They're not going to be doing any solo work. And is their dancing good enough? You know, and it's all that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, the one thing that, you know, I think you become more aware of the more experience you have of how much. Success is trade-offs where you, you don't get anything 100%, but you're putting three together. And then it takes on a special quality. The other thing is that the play actually transforms the people who are in the play. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They take on a added dimension, which is the teamwork dimension. Yeah, they have to have those three things. But then this is when we're into the realm of magic now.
1: You're right. You're right. And, you know, it's interesting because certainly the initial audition is akin to the job interview. How do you come across,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and I think contrary to what lots of people say, I think often the decisions are made within the first 30 seconds to a minute, (laughs) you know, whether you want to be around that person or not.
0: I found over 30 years on my getting used to someone and being comfortable with someone has moved from the first month down to the first 30 minutes to the <laughs> right. to the first 30 seconds you know like it's a click or it's not a click you know it was very interesting we hired a person and i wasn't part of the hiring process but in my offices in chicago and toronto i have a cafe And I don't have an office, I just have a table in the cafe. First of all, if I had an office, it would be a messy office, but the cafe is cleaned up at five o'clock every night and it's a fresh table and I can move around tables. But this woman walked through and I was struck by, my first thought is she's too perfect. There's something about her, she's just too perfect. You know, she wowed everybody. And Babsa, you know, I, I saw that person come through and I just want to tell you, she's too perfect. There's something that I'm picking up that there's something offbeat about this. One of our team leaders started going through emails and started going through social media and everything. And there was one email that was actually a doorway into another entire email universe. And she was, in her off hours, she was a burlesque dancer. Now, is that a plus or a minus? Yeah, I mean, it would be a good question if she comes out and says, look, I want to tell you something right now that, you know, I have a hobby and it's burlesque dancing and you can go to the videos and everything else. It's, you know, some people do other things. But this was raunchy burlesque and everything like that. And she came across as... The Salvation Army would not have a hard time with her. You know, she was that type of person. And sure enough, there was this whole other side of her, and the, there was other things about her personal life and everything that came through. But it was just momentary as she walked through. I said, wow, she's almost too perfect. And it was just something I was feeling.
1: Well, to your point, when we were auditioning people for Malver, which is our first commercial one, someone came in and Sang and read a couple scenes. And I said to Sheldon, oh, she's pretty good. And he goes, Yeah, but it's not going to work for us. And I said, Really? I'm not going to consider her? And he said, um, She's sure. going to be back for the dance audition. You'll see. I said, Okay. So later that afternoon, dance audition. There's probably in this group, let's say 16 dancers that are doing things in unison. She stops it three times to ask questions of Edgar, the choreographer. And then she says, can I talk to the director, please?
0: Oh, wow. And so- The director has already
1: talked. (laughs) and, And Sheldon goes down there and her back was to me. She's talking to him and Sheldon's my eyes catch. And he goes, huh? And he came back. And he said, You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because he's auditioned people for hundreds and hundreds of shows, he gets the vibe of somebody who's going to be a problem. And he said, Look, she's the kind of person that requires constant attention and disrupts the whole community that we have. Mm-hmm. And we can't have somebody like that. Oh, and, you know, and so was she talented? Yeah, she was talented but there are talented people who don't do that (laughs) and so you keep looking instead of settling
0: yeah and it's a funny thing because they my feeling is that intuition is highly developed wisdom that comes from years and years of trial and error experience yes And so intuition is not a haphazard thing. My sense, I've never met an entrepreneur who's been really successful on a continual basis. And what I mean by that, adapting to change very, very quickly, you know, in the marketplace, in the economy, and culturally there's changes. Who doesn't have a very, very nose for something's changing, you know, what was, working last quarter, may not work this quarter, and we got to get ready for it. And there's no factual information that in any way would support that intuition right now. Mm -hmm. But there may be in a month, and the intuition is picking up on a future problem early, or a future opportunity early. Yeah, and I want to mention something that also feeds
1: into this from the talent aspect, or the job candidate aspect. So going back some years when I was interviewing some people for an editing position for my production company, somebody came through and we were talking a bit and I said, um, are you familiar with what we do? And he said, no, not really. And I said, well, then what are you doing here? And he was like kind of stunned and I said, well, you're applying for a job, so I assumed that you would like to get a job, yet you don't know anything about the company. It's easy enough to research who we are and look at our work, and you hadn't done either. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's not good. Why would you do that? Now, flip that now to theater. Mm-hmm. We have somebody who's reading for a part. They know the song, or they know what's required. They have the sides. Let's say they see Lottie Miss Lottie in there. And so they don't sing it at all right, and they didn't bother to Google it, go to YouTube, and hear it so they could do the melody right. Mm-hmm. And so Shelton, the musical director and Shelton look at each other and say, "And I said, "Isn't that like auditioning 101? be prepared. So whether you're auditioning for a company or whether you're auditioning for a play, do your homework."
0: Well, yeah. You know directly the person I'm talking about here, and that's Gord Vickman, who's our podcast manager, who Great afterwards will package this and put it into the proper format. But we put in the specs for a podcast manager, and then we have like a five-step hiring process where I'm the last person actually to meet the person. You know, I talk to all of our team, what I'm looking for. Gord made it through all four previous filters. And the fourth one was, which of Dan's podcasts do you like the best? And they said, Dan's podcasts, what's that? And Gord had listened to about 20 of the podcasts. And when he came in, he said, I really like the one that you did on your father. And you're talking about what you learned from your father, you know, your business instincts. And he said, but I have a couple of questions to ask for you that came up when I was watching the podcast. And he was totally into the activity that he was going to be responsible for. But even my whole approach to it, he wanted to know how I had drawn the particular insights from my father, because my father was terrific as a worker and he was a good landscaper and a good farmer, but he could only be on his own. He never really knew how to hire. And I worked for him, you know, and not the sort of person I'd want to have as a boss. And he said, I was amazing that you said that Most people wouldn't bring that up about their father. And I said, well, I brought it up to him. So when he was alive, so, you know, so I said, there's no mysteries here. And I'm not the only one who had a father, you know, I mean, that's a human experience and everything. He said, that's it. He says, you just talk about things that humans experience. And he says, I think that's a good approach to podcasting. Yeah, well, and to the point he was
1: prepared Yeah. He was prepared to ask you questions. Yeah. Yeah, one of the actors who was auditioning for the part of the lawyer. We wanted to hear him do that. We heard him do a couple of things. We wanted to hear him do that. And so, you know, we said, do you want to take a few minutes to do it? Because he hadn't seen the sides yet. So he comes back in, in like 15 minutes. And he said, so I just want to be clear about something he is in louisiana is he from louisiana and he said yes so he said so he's got the southern accent and so you know he wanted to up his odds by asking the right questions so he could interpret the part yeah and that was really interesting because to me
0: again that's kind of 101 basics ask key questions show you're interested I think the biggest thing there, he's actually seen the play not from his perspective, but from your perspective. That's right. And that's a key thing in collaboration. And you know right off the bat that if he starts off by seeing things from your perspective, he's just answered about 15 questions that don't have to be asked. Yes, that's right.
1: Because what that activity does is win the confidence. Yeah.
0: That's right. Yeah, because you just want to write somebody's name in, and that's a solution. You don't want that name to be a problem. That's right. So
1: when I think about collaborations, what makes a good collaboration, you had sent me a great video, Oscar Peterson and Michelle LeGrand, two phenomenal, phenomenal musicians who played off of each other. There's no words in this. It's their music and the mutual respect, admiration, and joy that each had for the other while they were playing. And there was a conversation.
0: Both piano players, each with a very distinctive style. And then they merged their styles. I mean, that's crescendo when the bass player the drummer and everybody comes in and then they're actually they're almost doing a contrapuntal like Bach did with himself you know but melodically they were in tune right from the beginning I mean the other thing is that that particular song Michelle Legrand was the one who introduced it back in the 1960s it was a song I think it was a soundtrack from Umbrellas of Shareboard Yeah, but I think Michel Legrand was the one who made it famous as a single. And it was in Paris where the concert was. The concert was in Paris. And so he's a star of stars in France. You know, and Oscar Peterson is one of the great, great jazz pianists, probably around the world, but certainly in North America. I mean, and from Montreal originally, actually, Montreal-born... Anyway, but it's just such a pleasure that they both so know their art that they're just listening to where the other person actually is. Yes. They're not listening where they are. They're listening where the other person is, and they're just doing a merge or a meld of styles. And each of their styles is very distinct even when they're collaborating. Well, and you just hit on what I
1: think is one of the most important keys to a collaboration, and that is listening. You know, and that listening is so important. And it's not just listening, it's also engaging with it and paying attention.
0: And you're creating something that neither of you could do individually. You're creating that's right. a higher level of performance. Well,
1: in acting, something that's very powerful is the ability to listen. And especially important in theater, because... In movie, you might just have a close-up of one of the two people while they're talking in a quick reaction shot. In theater, you got to stay in character even if somebody does a monologue and you're the other person on stage. you got to stay in character. And it's not like you're just waiting to talk. You need to be engaged so you can bring the right energy into the conversation when you do talk and seem engaged. So that listening is critical and silence is very powerful. And so what they were doing is they were having a conversation with music. Mm -hmm. They were listening to each other, paying attention to each other. And when they switched who was playing, it was seamless Mm -hmm. because they were both so engaged in the other's work. Mm -hmm. And I think whether you're in business or performing, that is key. And then you couple that with what I think is so important is the joy of the process. You want that other person to succeed, too. And have a good time. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And that's so critical. You know, and I think of, so what are some other examples other than what I'm doing, what you do, in terms of collaborations that work so well? And I thought of like Scorsese with De Niro in those first few movies, where there's a brilliant Collaboration and clearly friendship and respect that's gone on now for what 50 years. Yeah. But amazing. Or you look at Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. Or you look at the Beatles.
0: Yeah. Or you look at the great lyricist composers, Oscar and Hammerstein and Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, mm-hmm. Gilbert and Sullivan, the great movie, right. a topsy turvy. They didn't even like each other. I mean, they didn't even like each other. They never actually worked together, but their style just perfectly merged. You know, Sullivan wanted to be a classical composer and he composed lots of classical stuff, but we only remember him for the work that he did with Gilbert, you know. And Gilbert just wanted to knock out plays and make a lot of money, you know. I mean, that was probably the first where that duo of lyricists and popular entertainment, the lyricist and the composer kind of became famous because they were like the Beatles. I mean, the Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, the operettas that they created. It's a wonderful film, Topsy Turvy, and it's, Mm -hmm. what's his name? He's an English director, but he insists that the actors have to start a year before the filming starts and they have to get into the roles. You know, it's late Victorian England, and he said, you have to know how people talk. You can't be a modern British person in this. And he brought in like butlers from Buckingham Palace to say, you know, how daily life... I mean, if you want to go to get a picture of what things were like 100 years ago, pull the talent in from Buckingham Palace because... It hasn't changed. <laughs> it hasn't changed at all. Was that director Mike Lay? Yeah, Mike Lay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's great. Yeah, he's Mike great. Lay, but you, you got to live the role before you even start.
1: So back to the play for a perfect example of that is that one of the dancers who was young Lloyd, Edgar, said to him, no, you can't do that move. You're into the 1990s. This is the 1950s. He said, well, I thought it'd be kind of cool. And he said, it's not kind of cool. We're faithful to the time of this play in its the 1950s. And those weren't moves that were done then. And it's just like what you're saying, is that, you know, you've got to be true to the part so that it all seems authentic. And that authenticity comes from doing research, or it comes from listening to the people that no. you're working with, that kind of thing. I,
0: I think the, the subtitles of our entire podcast here is listening. <laughs> I mean, the whole notion of a professional is that you've practiced so much. That you can't get it wrong, and that means that your attention can be completely open to listening to what other people are doing. You're not preoccupied with what you're doing. You're just listening to what all the other members of the team are doing.
1: Well, the important thing about that, which is true in business, and it's true in theater and film, and that is you have to agree on what the objective is. And everybody's got to be reading from the same script, so to speak yeah and you know if you're not there's going to be a dissonance
2: yeah
1: so you want to eliminate that dissonance so that you're all working together and it's interesting because even recently sheldon and i were in a meeting and somebody was saying well you should have a uh, celebrity be your lead because that'll help you get onto more to talk shows and you'll get more publicity because you know, they get publicity, they're stars, so they get publicity. And I said, no. Why do you say no? I said, because I want the play to be the star. I don't want Lloyd Price as interpreted by X, you know, or X is Lloyd Price. I want it to be personality, the Lloyd Price musical. But, you know, it's really interesting because when you all agree And everybody's target is that. It's not about... Sheldon and I had coffee together yesterday morning before I took off, you know, left for the airport. And we were saying about a particular scene, what would you think if we did it this way and we gave that decision to this character instead of that character, that could change the color of that scene, give that character more power and deepen their relationship? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I like that that's cool. Mm -hmm. I'll try that. And when you give currency to other people's ideas and you don't try to be the hog, you know, or the person, you know, the only ideas that are good are their ideas or what they believe to be their ideas. My mom always used to say to me, don't argue with them. Repeat what they said earlier and say what a good idea was or and I have done this and it has worked. And I'll say, you know, when you said X, you know, I've really been thinking about that. That was really great. Well, they didn't say X; I repeated back what I had said earlier that <laughs> credited them with saying it. And they thought it was a great idea once it was theirs. <laughs> so,
0: Sam Goldman, he said, you know, in Hollywood, the most important skill is sincerity. He says, because once you can fake that, you're clear to go. (laughs) That's right. That's right.
1: Although my favorite Hollywood quote is actually William Goldman, screenwriter, who said, nobody knows anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is true. Everybody can explain why something
0: was successful afterwards. It's like big data. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah,
1: you find all the supporting arguments
0: for uh, it. It predicted everything up until yesterday. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But That's nothing right. that new that got created today that that hasn't shown up as measurable data yet.
1: So you know, how do you see theater, entertainment, like what we're talking about, and entrepreneurship and business? hand in glove in terms of the importance and the criteria for having a good collaboration. Yeah, I
0: mean, my approach to entrepreneurship has always been the entertainment model. And one of the key things that's different, and it's been a great differentiator for a coach right from the beginning, that if you look how entertainers schedule their life, they have three essentially different kinds of days. They've got, obviously, performance days when you're delivering it, but they also have days which are practice or rehearsal days. And then they have free time, either willingly or (laughs) unwillingly, they have free time. And so there have to be rejuvenation periods because it's very demanding work. But most people, entrepreneurs attempt to run their life by a corporate bureaucratic day which is everything mixed together every day, including the weekends. And the email is never off. The cell phone is never off. And I said, I don't think you get great performance. I think you get, at best, acceptable average performance from people. But there's no distinctions. You're just part of the same process for years on end. And there has to be these very sharp, energetically different kind of ways that you lead your life. You know, I mean, a performance day isn't what you did when the audience can see you. The performance day was how you got up that morning, how you prepared yourself, you know, to go there. And the whole day you have to consider as performance day because you can't have out of character moments during that day. You have to be in character, but that takes a lot of energy and you have to have days when you're off and plus that it took a lot of practice and rehearsal to get you to the point where you could be convincingly in character and that takes a lot of energy and you've got to have a 180 degree break from that at certain points because you may be moving on to a totally different game a totally different play so we institute that rate right from the beginning and it's done wonders and i said our Entrepreneurs make twice as much money in half the amount of work time, you know. But that was just for my entertainment days. I said this whole corporate and bureaucratic time system at best delivers high-quality mediocrity. I love high-quality mediocrity. (laughs) Well, it's better than low-quality mediocrity. That's true. (laughs) I have about five before I have to be summoned.
1: Your parole officer is knocking at the yes, door. Yes.
0: <laughs> My bracelet just went off.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that on one side of the equation, those who are trying to get the work, this is just to kind of wrap things up. I think it's important to be prepared. Not only know what you're applying for, but why are you applying? And so the example you gave of Gord, who came in prepared with questions and who was fully knowledgeable about what you did as opposed to the person I met with and said, no, I don't really know what you do. Why don't you tell me about it? <laughs> no, <laughs> goodbye. And so you can do a lot to get on the team by being prepared. Mm-hmm. And once you're on the team, that collaboration, that willingness to listen, to contribute without ownership, because what you want is to reach the objective you've all agreed as to what it is. And it just makes for a much better
0: time. Yeah. And the play is the star. That's a great line. That's right. Yeah. And I think that you can build about 20 chapters under that particular one-liner. Well, you know, I think that once again,
1: Dan, we have been true to the name, (laughs) anything
0: and everything Actually, I thought we were fairly focused, unusually focused today. You know, I think we stayed within parameters today. and We did. And you know, there's not many parameters in life that I've ever respected. <laughs> well, only because of the interest of time. And
1: I know that you have other commitments. So it's just sometimes... By this point in the conversation, we start ricocheting all over the place, but we were, relatively speaking, pretty focused this time.
0: Yep. yeah. But it's a great topic. And as we said right at the beginning, at the first lunch, when we surprised you by offering to pay for some of the coffee on the (laughs) overall production, I said, uh, you know, I had a great interest in theater when I was just turning 20, you know, decided fairly quickly after that that it was an interest and I liked it and everything but it wasn't going to be my career. But this gave me a chance to actually experience it at the major league level from the inside through my discussions with you. This has been a sheer pleasure for us, both Babs and I, to kind of be companions on the trip.
1: Well, you guys are both great companions, and I'm very grateful for the support, both emotional and financial, in moving this forward. And what fun is an experience if you can't share it, Mm -hmm. you know, and so that's a wonderful
0: thing. And thank you for that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have Gord go through and pull out all the discussions specifically about the development of the personality production, because... We have two or three years of where you were at that point, and I think it'd be interesting to... Cool. Yeah. That would be interesting. And I want to say
1: to our listeners, we've never said this before, but if you enjoy listening to us, leave a review. That helps on Apple. We'd love to hear what you guys think, what you enjoy listening to, what catches your interest, and we'd appreciate you doing that. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit a creativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.